0: Celebrate the progress that you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Curiosities today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Curiosities. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. A magician is in a precarious position every time they approach an audience. For one, the magician doesn't know how a spectator is going to react. People walking into a performance are already in a skeptical mindset, trying to unravel the illusions as they unfold. Their eyes are telling them one thing, but their minds know more is going on. They just can't see it. And so the magician must overcome that skepticism with feats of wonder, such as objects that levitate without any visible wires, or signed cards that appear in an audience member's wallet. Today's magicians hone their skills by building upon the techniques of old. Many of today's tricks, the kinds that are performed on television competitions and variety shows, have their roots in well-worn, hundred-year-old slights. But one trick, no matter how it has changed or how it's performed, has stumped magicians for decades. The concept is simple, but one man's execution has blown the minds of those privileged enough to see it. And his name? David Berglas. Berglis spent his early childhood in Nazi Germany, having once sat near Adolf Hitler at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin when he was just 10 years old. As the political climate got worse, however, Bergless's family left Germany for England. World War II broke out a few years later, and in 1945, as things were coming to an end, 19-year-old Burglis volunteered to help. He didn't use a gun, though. Instead, he joined an initiative being spearheaded by the Americans known as denazification. As a result, he spent 18 months helping to rid Germany of Nazi propaganda, including books and other media. It wasn't until 1947 when he found his true love, magic. He met Ken Brook, a talented magician who had been performing since the age of seven. Brook ran a magic shop in London, and with his help, Bergla spent the next several years studying intensely. On most nights, he would go to a magic club or attend a show, all while developing his own routines. But it was in 1953 when he unveiled the trick that would put him on the map. Now, most versions of it are known by the name Any Card at Any Number, or A-Can, to magicians. But David's rendition was so powerful, it has earned its own name. The Burgless Effect. Although executions change depending on the magician, every iteration of A-Can follows the same conceit, Dating all the way back to the 18th century, one member of the audience is asked to name a card in the deck, such as the Seven of Clubs, and then another spectator is asked to pick a number between 1 and 52. If they pick 27, then 26 cards are dealt from the top of the deck, and as the 27th card is turned over, it is revealed as the Seven of Clubs. The trick often receives a positive reaction, but every performance always has the same fatal flaw. The magician has to touch the deck at least once. They might shuffle it or push it towards the spectator sitting across the table. And in doing so, a manipulation of the cards is achieved right under the audience's nose. The Burgless effect, though, was different. Burgless never touched the cards for the duration of the trick. There was no sleight of hand, no funny business. The entire illusion was performed from a distance, and it puzzled both audiences and his fellow magicians. Now, the immediate reaction is that people assume he had a plant in his audiences. Someone who had been told to call out a card or a number that had been predetermined by Burglis before the effect had begun. Yet, every time he performed for others in his industry, he won them over. Sometimes he would do it only for one or two people at a time, not a stooge in sight. Burglis had seemingly done the impossible. And his talents extended beyond any card at any number, too. Another magician named Stephen Cohen had been a regular performer at New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. On a 2002 trip to London, Cohen had gone to dinner with Burglas. At the end of the night, his host offered to take him back to the subway station where he could take his train to the hotel. They reached the station, and Cohen told Burglas that he hoped the next time they met, he could see his legendary version of the card trick. Immediately, the mood in the car shifted. Things got tense and Berglis told him that he would never forget what he was about to see. He asked him to name a card, and Cohen called out the Three of Diamonds. Burglis then asked him to reach into his own coat and select the deck of cards from its pocket, the only deck that Berglis had been carrying that night. And sure enough, right there on the bottom of the deck, just as he had predicted, was the Three of Diamonds. The Burglis effect continued to baffle amateurs and professionals for years. Eventually, David Berglis allowed an explanation to be published, but even some seasoned magicians found themselves perplexed by the methods described. David Berglis had changed the face of magic with a simple idea. It wasn't about the cards or the numbers. He made the impossible possible. He made adults feel like kids again. And most importantly, he made people wonder. And that, perhaps, was the greatest trick of all. The California gold rush was technically never supposed to happen. In the months following the end of the Mexican-American War, California was set to officially become a part of the United States. The population was small but growing, and it wasn't ready for what was about to happen. Businessman John Sutter had come from Switzerland to Alta, California to establish a new colony. It was called Nueva Helvetia, Spanish for New Switzerland. And although history paints Sutter as a pioneer, he enslaved many of the native tribes there to help him build his settlement. But he also employed a number of people, including some native peoples as well as several Europeans. One such employee was a New Jersey man named James Marshall. In January of 1848, Marshall was working on the construction of a new water-powered lumber mill along the American River when he noticed something shining in the water. They were flakes of metal. Marshall rushed them back to Sutter, who had the pieces tested. And sure enough, the two men had struck gold. They tried to keep the news quiet for a while, knowing that if word got out about gold in California, there would be a massive rush of people into his territory. Well, things didn't stay quiet for too long. By March, a San Francisco journalist and business owner named Samuel Brannon had also discovered gold near Sutter's mill. Realizing what he had found, Brannon set up shop nearby, literally, He opened a store selling prospecting supplies, then returned to San Francisco, where he walked the streets, a little bottle of gold flakes in hand, announcing where he had found them. And the rest, as they say, was history. The gold rush brought hundreds of thousands of people from across the globe to California in search of the American dream. But the ships docking in the San Francisco Bay brought more than just eager gold hunters. Entrepreneurs, families, and 'er ne'er-do-wells all flocked to the West Coast for a chance at fortune. Of course, this also led to overcrowding. With so many people taking over, it got harder and harder to make a living as a miner. But there was another place out there where fortune was waiting to be found. And all one had to do was make the 28-mile journey by sea to get there. Off the coast of San Francisco was a cluster of islands known as the Farallon Islands, or the Farallons. The 42-acre territory had been untapped during the gold rush, and for good reason— It was almost impossible to reach. The waters were choppy, and the islands were surrounded by sharp rocks and even sharper teeth. You see, the seals that shored there attracted great white sharks. But many 49ers were undeterred by the dangerous hurdles between them and riches beyond their wildest dreams. Because upon reaching the islands, enterprising men like pharmacist Doc Robinson began sailing back with loads of eggs. That's right. Eggs. Eggs. You see, the miners who had come to California weren't just draining the rivers and mountains of gold. They were also eating the local farming community into bankruptcy. The agricultural industry couldn't keep up with demand. But even if the prospect of gold wasn't a guarantee, one thing was always certain. People had to eat. So Robinson started selling the eggs he stole to local markets and restaurants, kicking off a whole new kind of rush on the West Coast. Unfortunately, one basic tenet of business held true even then. When one person found success, they also found competition. By the early 1860s, other egg-hunting outfits started coming to the island for a slice of the pie, though Robinson's Pacific Egg Company had laid claim to the islands for their exclusive use. One man in particular, David Batchelder, didn't care who owned the Farallons. He had grown tired of the egg company running the show, so he gathered up enough men to fill 3 boats and sailed over to confront him on June 3rd of 1868. Robinson's men had been waiting though. When Batchelder's crew arrived, one of the egg company employees shouted a warning that went ignored. Batchelder was going to get what he felt was his. In response, Robinson's eggers fired at the boats, and Batchelder's men fired back. One of the egg company employees was struck by a bullet and killed, as was a rival egger on Batchelder's side. Despite each side's losses, though, Robinson's men had successfully driven Batchelder and his boats away from the island. After the short-lived egg war of the Farallons, the federal government stepped in and ordered an end to all commercial egging on the island. But that didn't stop unscrupulous people from sneaking over from time to time whenever they needed more. Luckily for the native birds, though, illegal egging eventually came to a stop. Chicken farming became the new and easier way to harvest eggs for cooking, and so people no longer had to risk life and limb by sailing to the Farallon Islands anymore. The native bird population had an opportunity to recover. And that, my friends, is what I would call an excellent outcome. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities.